News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, have you ever wished you could put on an invisibility cloak and just, well, be invisible? Well, science has changed a little bit. Is that something that is possible? Dr. Greg Gabor is a theoretical optical physicist and joins us on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you. It seems like it would be something very cool to have at your fingertips, but how feasible, how likely is it that you could come up with something like an invisibility cloak? Well, at this point, I tend to tell people that we've decided that invisibility is possible and we're kind of pushing it towards being plausible, which is a big step because for quite a long time, people thought it was impossible. Right. So what has changed or what is it that makes it so we're now in that position where it could be possible? Well, it came down to some papers, that theoretical papers that came out in 2006 that really started the ball rolling that showed not only theoretically that it's possible to make invisibility, but gave us sort of a prescription of how it might work and how an invisibility cloak could be built. And how is it possible? (laughs) Well, the basic idea, the original basic idea of an invisibility cloak is a structure, I kind of picture like a glass jar almost, where light comes into it, gets guided around a central hidden region, and then the light gets sent on its way, kind of like water flowing around a rock in a stream. And so the light comes out the other side as if it encountered nothing at all, and it never touches the hidden region inside. Hmm. And so is it, what are people actually seeing? If you say are the person that's inside that jar-like structure and it's working the way you just described, what are people that are looking at it, what are they actually seeing? The people outside, um, the people outside in principle would see nothing. Uh, The funny thing is, is because of the fact that the ideal original invisibility cloaks were designed to kind of make all light avoid that central region, the person inside would see nothing at all. And so there's been a number of adjustments and strategies to change that because obviously that's not terribly helpful either. Right. So you'd be in the cloak, but you'd kind of be lost. You wouldn't know what was happening around you? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Why do you think we've been so fascinated with this or fixated on this and trying to find a way to make that perfect invisibility cloak? Well, partly, I think, for scientists, part of it is just that it's something that we thought was impossible and just seems really exciting to demonstrate things that otherwise we thought were impossible. Um, Otherwise, it's a great way to understand how to control light more. Um, The techniques that have been introduced for inventing invisibility have also been used to design all sorts of other optical devices that could appear in future technology. And by that, do you mean things like we talk about stealth airplanes or other objects that can be, it could be a benefit to have them operating in a way that people don't know that they're there? Um, That's a possibility. Another nice possibility is that um, if, you can cl- if you can cloak an object from light waves, you can, in principle, also cloak an object from things like earthquake waves. 
So people have actually studied the idea that you could put structures in the ground using the same design principles as invisibility cloaks to try and protect buildings from earthquake waves. Hmm. And how how close do you think we are to even getting to a point where that's something that could happen? Well, um, the earthquake wave stuff, people have done practical tests, though I imagine there would be quite a few years still before anybody actually tries to use it in a practical sense. Much more testing to be done. The invisibility cloak for visible light, I've gotten in trouble by predicting it before, but there's constant progress being made. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see better and better invisibility demonstrations over the next decade. Hmm. And I was looking at some of your work and and writings about this as well, and I thought it was interesting that there's also research being done that you don't have to actually be inside the invisibility cloak, that you could be next to it and still have the same reaction or the same effect? Yes. Um, If you basically, if you know how light gets scattered off an object, so if I wanted to hide myself and I know how the light is scattering off of me, I could in principle design an object that basically stands next to me and cancels all the scattered light that would otherwise come off of me and make me invisible. And how much light is needed or how important is where the light is coming from and whether or not the light is constant? Um, That's an interesting, nice question because one challenge is if there's very rapidly changing light conditions, that could be a limitation for the invisibility cloak. Not a major one, but depending on the type of invisibility one does, if things change rapidly, it could be difficult for the cloak to adjust very quickly. Right. I I was thinking that, that, yeah, if if you're in changing conditions or bright to dark, it it might have an impact on whether the cloak is really working or not. I would think the last thing you would want in a scenario where you're inside an invisibility cloak is to have the whole thing kind of go away and there you are standing there. Yeah, exactly. And the conditions around you other than light can make a difference too. If you're in a rainstorm, obviously people are going to see that there's a part of empty space that's not getting rained on. Right. Uh, how much of this, too, we, we tend to see these things in, in fictional ways. Maybe they're in, in movies or they're in stories, and oftentimes there's, uh, there's a, a scary aspect to it, or it is hiding from something that's, that's uh, scary, or, or there's a reason that uh, the hiding is taking place. How much of that kind of plays into this, or, or should, do you think we should move away from when looking at this, maybe on a more practical level? Well... Yeah, one of the challenges with invisibility is science fiction has traditionally been invisibility is all about kind of sinister purposes for sneaking around, doing bad things on the scene. Um, it's nice to move away from that. That's part of why I always like to stress the earthquake cloaking approaches and stuff that people are using the same sort of technology for other ideas. And have even thought about invisibility for aesthetics. If you could make a unsightly skyscraper a little less visible or a little more see-through that might be an aesthetic advantage for people right so if you don't like the look of a building not a problem we'll just make that wing or that part of it so you don't see it exactly i guess what does that mean for the people inside the building though (laughs) um 
That's a very good question. Um, I guess it depends on how the invisibility is done. Again, it could be a problem if it blocks all the light, then they would see nothing. But I have a feeling it would be a balance of trying to just make the building less visible from the outside, but still visible from the inside. All right. Well, I love that the research is continuing and moving along into the realm of possible. Dr. Greg Gabor, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Time to check in with show contributor Scott Chance. Good morning to you. Morning, Jill. How are you today? Very well. Yourself? Ah, pretty good. Uh, we were talking earlier this week about uh, flying and mm-hmm. some of the crazy things that happen on flights. And uh, as if it wasn't already uncomfortable enough, I found this story uh, super crazy. In New Zealand, they're starting this. Air New Zealand, actually, the country's uh, their national airline air carrier has announced that they're going to start weighing people before they get on airplanes. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, so imagine you like walk up to check in and as per usual you passport, you know, they take your luggage cuz they want to weigh that. You set that on the scale and then once that's weighed, they ask you, "Please stand on this scale right here so we can take your weight." And then you can proceed through. No one's going to be excluded because of their weight. There's no over, under or anything. But they say they want to gather data. They're trying to, you know, find out how much weight is actually going on the plane. They weigh everything else, all the food, the supplies that they – everything – so why don't they weigh passengers right. is, is kind of the thinking here. But still, there are a lot of other people who are saying, well, no other airlines are doing this. <laughs> so why do I have to do this? I've, I find it interesting because I've often thought that, you know, when you're a kilogram over on your carry on and they make you take it out right. and put it, it's like, but you have no idea what I weigh or what anybody else weighs. So why does that matter if I'm a kilogram over or you have to pay extra for it? I think this is kind of interesting. And what I like about it is I'd have no problem with this as long as they don't tell me what the number is. I don't want to see my weight on the screen before I go on vacation. And from what I understand, they don't see it either. It goes into the information of the flight and you get on. That to me would be fine. That's right. Yeah. So no one sees it. It's not like there's a big uh, digital readout, <laughs> you, you know, up above. Uh, that would be kind of fun. But there's no, there's nothing like that. They say the information, the people taking the, the your bags and checking you through, they don't see it. It all is just getting tabulated and sent back to, you know, mission control so they can ha- have this data. But there's still just something about asking a person to step on a scale mm-hmm. and there's a line of people behind you. You know, I, I think that it can be a, a bit... Uh, I don't know, demeaning. And I also think that this is the start of a slippery slope, you know, where they do sort of say, well, we've been weighing you anyway. So now we do sort of have to, we do know that uh, when we have these people who weigh this much or when the average weight of the plane is this much, it costs us X much more in fuel. And so we need to start charging more. So I think there, it's a slippery slope to sort of having to quantify these consequences, you know? Uh, (laughs) But I do kind of like the idea of having the digital readout and making some sort of a game out of it. Right. Could you imagine though, if the fare was linked to your weight and 
So, oh, you're you're at one twenty. Here's your fare, two twenty. Mm, no, you have to pay more. Yeah, that would be that would be something. It sure would. And then, uh, what if we got first class, like the bump up? You know, you know, always when you check in, you're kind of like waiting for the bump up. It's like, well, I am a bigger person, so I do need a bigger seat. That's right, right this way to first class, sir. <laughs> oh, I'm sure that's going to happen right around the corner. <laughs> but yeah, I remember I haven't had this happen for a long time. But even when they used to on flights put people in certain sections to yes. level things out. I often thought, is that really going to make all the difference? Because if so, I'm a little nervous. What if what if, the, what if they put people in the wrong area? This is a great point, you know? And I think that sort of goes to the, the point of the people who are against this. Is like, we've been flying for decades without, without this, this yeah. you know? So do we, is it really going to make that much of a difference? But I suppose that, you know, and the, the bottom line is getting thinner and thinner and thinner, that they're starting to find ways to... To trim the margin, as it were. <laughs> All right. Interesting uh, stuff happening with the Air New Zealand. Thank you. Yeah, we'll see where it ends up. Maybe yeah. here in Canada, too. Who maybe, knows? Maybe. Maybe. Well, hopefully people will call the buzz line. Uh, let us know. Good idea? Bad idea? What are your thoughts? Air New Zealand is going to start weighing people. You won't see it. Nobody sees it. But they want to know how much everything on the plane is going to weigh. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's check back in with Mornings with Simi contributor, Scott Chance. Hello again to you. Uh, good morning. How are you doing? Very well. And you are taking a look at something. This has been in the news for many, many years and uh, some issues around birth tourism. Yeah, it kind of dropped off during the pandemic, but it is definitely back. And there's new statistics that would suggest that it is on the rise in a big way. And uh, I wanted to know more about it because, you know, lots of people are discussing it? Is it a good idea for our country? Is it a bad idea for our country? So I got in touch with Andrew Griffith. He's the former Director General of Citizenship and Immigration and Refugee Citizenship for Canada, and he had a lot of information to share. But I started by asking him just, you know, like, let's get this defined for people who might not even be aware. What exactly is birth tourism? Well, birth tourism is essentially Uh, when women come to Canada for the sole purpose of giving birth to their child in Canada, so their child then is entitled to Canadian citizenship. So it's not like regular immigration where people come, they reside, they work, they study, whatever, and give birth. It's somebody who just comes specifically for the purpose, they want citizenship for their child. How prevalent is this? Like, is this happening all across the country? And and like, how, how often? Well, it's happening mainly in the larger provinces, mainly in centers where, of course, there are major air traffic. So you you see Vancouver, you see uh, Toronto and the GTA. Um, We're seeing some in Alberta and there's some in Montreal. Um, The overall prevalence is we don't have 100% accurate numbers because nobody really keeps tabs on that. But if we use health data information for women who give birth in Canada, but who are non-residents, i.e. they have to pay for their services. Um, That gives us a sense. And so it's roughly about uh, half a percentage point. So it's relatively small. Um, I think the issue remains is that for some, it's perceived as a shortcut towards Canadian citizenship. The, the way that this happens, is it quite literally like family says, hey, let's, you know, quote unquote, 
go on vacation to Canada. And then when they go into labor, it's just, oh, we, we didn't plan on having our labor in Canada. Or is it a, out in the open thing? Like when they come through our borders, are they saying, I'm coming here to give birth? You sometimes get glimpses. Like there was one couple who was interviewed um, and they were very upfront about it. And you also have uh, in, in uh, BC in Richmond, there was a whole cottage industry, hostels, which catered oh, wow. to women. So I suspect it's a bit of a range of uh, people who come here. Customs officers will not ask, did you come here to give birth? Probably not. They'll ask other questions. And visa officers aren't allowed. They can't refuse a visa on the grounds of birth tourism. It's just, it, you know, you need a regulatory change uh, and arguably a legislative change to do that. I mean, that was going to be sort of my next question is at a government level, they don't seem to care or do they? I don't think they care. And the provinces basically said it's not worth the time and effort that we would have to do to enforce this to make it worthwhile. When the first analysis that I did came out showing the numbers were higher than expected, there was a flurry of activity, but nothing ever came out of that because again, and you know, the issue died, and so the governments are moved on to other things, which is you know normal in one sense. Are there other countries where this where this is an issue, and are they dealing with it in similar ways? The main issue is in the United States, uh, where the numbers obviously, like everything in the United States, they're much larger. But the Americans have a constitutional amendment, meaning that to change it would be virtually impossible. Whereas in Canada, if the government wanted to, they could do it through legislative change and it wouldn't be a problem. The other country that is interesting has come up recently is Argentina, because Russians do not need a visa to go to the Argentina. So recently, a large number of Russian women have ended up in Argentina in order to give birth to their kids so they don't have to be Russian. Uh, you know, so one of those interesting things. So the, Russia, the, the wealthy Russians used to go to Miami, but sort of the, you know, less wealthy seem to be going to Argentina recently. Wow, it's an interesting thing. And I suppose that it's a thing that um, many of us take for granted just being born in Canada. So some very interesting stuff there. And I, I think if nothing else, we should all, you know, take a moment to just um, think about how lucky we are to to be born here and to be able to call this place home. Uh, Andrew Griffith, thank you so much. I appreciate being asked. Thanks very much and have a good day. So what do you think, Jill? Birth tourism. Should we care? The government doesn't really seem to. Uh, how do you feel about it? Yeah, and uh, having covered this before, I mean, one of the issues, if you look at the Richmond Hospital, I think it has the largest number, or at least pre-pandemic, it had the largest number of non-resident births. The issue with that was there were women that couldn't get into the Richmond Hospital that right. then had to go to other hospitals. They were over capacity. And there were some questions about that. Should people be able to to take the beds for birth tourism when they're needed by Richmond residents or residents in the health authority. And I mean, it was very well known that there were Airbnbs, there were places that were running specifically for this, but it's not illegal. There's nothing illegal about doing it. It's, it's people taking advantage of a law that we have, that if you're born in Canada, you're Canadian citizenship, you can sponsor your family members later on. So unless they want to change the law and, and do something about it, it's not like people are doing anything wrong. 
Yeah. And I think that that is kind of the sticking point for a lot of people is, you know, we're in the middle of uh, what many people have called a bit of a health care crisis, especially as it relates to maternity wards. And uh, you're taking up a bed that could be used uh, by somebody who has been here uh, longer their entire life. There's some questions around that. But otherwise, yeah, some people like and. As Andrew said, the government not really too, too concerned about it. But statistically, 57 percent of people surveyed citizens are concerned about it and would like to see some laws change. So it'll be interesting to see if this becomes more of an issue. And now that the government sort of realizes like this is very important to people or more important than we thought it was, are we going to do something about it? All right, Scott, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. For a few months now, ADP Canada has been tracking happiness in the workplace and the scores are now out for May. So how happy are people? Let's check in with Heather Haslam, Vice President of Marketing at ADP Canada. Thanks so much for being here. Good morning. How happy are you feeling this morning, Jill? (laughs) I'd say my happiness level is pretty good. So I'm uh, in line with what the happiness score looks like for the month of May. Before we take a look at some of the findings. Can you just explain a little bit how is the happiness score actually calculated? Yeah, let me tell you a little bit about it. So the ADP Canada Happiness at Work Index is a monthly measure of Canadians' happiness at work. And the index calculates a monthly average of national work happiness score along with regional work happiness scores. And what it's doing is it's combining a self-reported sentiment of happiness at work with respect to their current roles and responsibilities, as well as the ratings of four secondary indicators that are identified as common components of job satisfaction. And it's really hoping to aim, um, it's, it's aiming to provide Canadian workplaces and HR professionals, decision makers, people leaders, if you will, Jill, with a regular close to real-time pulse of how Canadian workforce is feeling within their current workplace, and it's measuring their level of happiness at work. And is it all kinds of jobs and workplaces, or how are those chosen? Yes, so it's a representative sample of working Canadians across uh, multiple industries. So we get uh, enough uh, respondents into the survey so that we can look at regional Uh, differences, as well as anything, make sure that we're covering all of the different verticals and industries, places, types of work, Um, as well as we look at uh, ages and different generations to see if there are any differences around happiness based on uh, where you are in your life. So let's see what the numbers tell us. And it looks like across the board in the different categories, things are up slightly. Is that a surprise at all? Or does May generally see workers being a bit happier? Maybe spring is is coming, the weather is nicer. What are you seeing in those numbers? Yeah, it's a really good question. So we've only been at this uh, about four months now. We have five months worth of data. And so I don't have comparables year over year to really understand seasonality, but I'll be back at you uh, next spring to be able to highlight that specifically. We can certainly hypothesize about what it is that's creating an opportunity for people to feel happier. Uh, This survey doesn't go into exactly why, but I don't know. My guess is that patio season has something to do with it. 
could be a, a good indicator of that uh, for sure. Uh, what about some of the areas? I know you look at things like work-life balance, compensation, recognition. Are those things, or what did you see when asking workers about those parts of their their experience at work? Yeah, so those secondary indicators really help us understand a little bit about what's driving happiness. So on that front, it's, it's really good news all around for the May results. So when I look at things like uh, compensation and benefits, which scored a 6.3, that was increased one point. Recognition and support is a 6.7, and that came up 0.2 points, which is great. Um, the, the highest, the, the happiest indicator is work-life balance and flexibility. That stayed flat, but that's at 6.9. So we're, we're feeling pretty good nationally about our ability to balance our, our work demands and our home demands. The area of opportunity, and and I know I shouldn't always go to the lowest score on the report card when my son comes home, but we can't help but focus on opportunities for career advancement. That's at 6.1. Now, I'm still feeling optimistic because May it came up 0.2, but really the opportunities for career advancement really help us Uh, understand what it is that Canadian employers and people leaders can do to help drive happiness on that front. And what about age? I know you take a look at it as well, different age groups. Who's the happiest? And uh, uh, we won't use the the bad report card uh, off the top, but who's the happiest and who's not uh, maybe the happiest? Okay, so I've got good news in May. Um, uh, First of all, who's the happiest? Boomers. Boomers remain the happiest working generation, and that's really for the third straight month. And they continue to be the only generation to have received a 7 out of 10, really since inception, since we've been doing this. They did uh, experience a slight decline in workplace happiness in May, just dropping 0.1, but still uh, boomers are at 7.2 out of 10 in May. What's interesting, when we look at Gen Z, when we look at um, other areas, Gen Z actually had the largest increase. They jumped 0.5, so up from 6.4 up to 6.9 in May. And the secondary indicator, the thing that's helping, which has really helped us get at what is driving that, is again, work-life balance and flexibility and recognition, which is great. Millennials also saw a notable increase month over month. Um, and they jumped up to 6.8, which is really great. So uh, it's, the, it's the primary or those secondary indicators that are really helping us understand uh, what it is that's driving that and also creates that area of opportunity. Interesting. It looks like Gen Xers, though, are at the, the bottom of the list when it comes to the happiness score. Uh, that's definitely the case. When we look at um, the generation and then coupled with uh, the lowest uh, regional scores, um, it looks like, you know, you don't want to be um, Gen, Gen X in uh, Ontario or Saskatchewan and Manitoba, Alberta is down at 6.5. So you really start to get at um, where where we might be struggling more on the happiness scale. Well, maybe that's just a delayed patio season. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly. Well, yeah, I was wondering, is there anything specific to Gen X? I'm looking at the, the score there, 6.5 out of 10. Anything that sticks out as to why that score is lower? It is those secondary drivers. So when we go a level deeper and we look at uh, Gen X and we actually look at, you know, where are they ranking against other generations, 
all of those secondary indicators, so comp and benefits, how they're feeling about being recognized, not just by their leader, but also by their team, um, areas of opportunity, career advancement. This is where employers need to do a really good job of laying out the path, what the opportunities are, actually knowing what it is that their individual team members want. Because you can't, you know, provide career advancement opportunities if you don't know what it is that that individual strengths are and what their skills are, what their ambitions are, what it is that they want to do in the future. And so that's why we keep going back to, we have good news and there's still an area of opportunity because those secondary indicators are where it is that we need to focus specifically for our, our Gen Xers. All right. Heather Haslam, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. I hope you're, uh, you're still feeling happy the way that you started this morning. Indeed. Thank you again so much for your time. Have a good one. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett in for Simi Sarah. Well, starting today, British Columbians can get the help they need much more conveniently at their local pharmacy as 21 minor ailments can now be treated and prescribed by a pharmacist. We're talking about things like allergies, shingles and contraception, at least some types of contraception. Joining us to talk a little bit more about this is Chris Chu, president of the BC Pharmacy Association. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Joe. With this increase in prescribing powers and helping, how, how much busier do you think, or how are pharmacists going to be dealing with this? You know what, I think that will definitely help um, in terms of uh, the healthcare system. And initially, we expect it to be a little bit busier for the first month, just because of the fact that there's going to be questions and uncertainty as to what the pharmacist exactly can do. Um, so if I can, a couple of examples the first one quickly is allergies. This past allergy season that just occurred before this announcement, um, f- people would come in and say, oh, I have an allergy. We would actually go through the different options, assess them, and then go through the different options that are over the counter. And the patient would say, oh, we've tried all that. It's not working. Then we'd have to send them into the doctor. Well, for those ones, we actually now can prescribe medications at this point. If those over-the-counter medications did not work, and we, we definitely determined that it is an allergy. Um, so it actually increases our ability to give them different options. The other one, though, um, urinary tract infections is another minor ailment that we could actually prescribe for. So if the patient comes in, gives us their symptoms, and says, oh, I've got a high fever, I see a little bit of blood in my urine, and actually it's been occurring for over two weeks now, well, for that person, we would say, you know, you need to go in to see your doctor. Um, we, let's help to see if we can get you into an urgent care center or to your family physician right away so that we can actually get you treated uh, with the appropriate therapy at that point. Right. So in a scenario like that, even if the person says that they have these symptoms and maybe they've, they've dealt with this before, the pharmacist then would still refer them to a doctor or could the pharmacist give, give the prescription directly to that person? If it's actually that severe where um, we've assessed and, and determined that uh, their symptom would, is more severe than just a minor ailment, and that's the key word that is a minor ailment, we don't want to actually mask it by prescribing something and then having it get worse. So if we find that, uh, it, particularly for that case where it's been longer than usual and other complicating factors as well too, we will send them to a physician right away. But if they come in and said, oh, it just started, there's a little bit of pain, and I've had it before, then at that point, we would actually feel comfortable prescribing an antibiotic to help them get um, the, the needed medications right away. 
Right. And what about follow-up? Does somebody, because in a case with a doctor, you might follow up with your doctor if maybe you're not feeling better after you've taken the antibiotics or, or something. Would people then be coming back and checking back in with the pharmacist? So that's exactly what would happen is actually if they've actually already um, gone to their doctor, initiated therapy already as well too, and there's no improvement with that therapy after three or four days, um, we would actually send them back to their doctor right away because there's something definitely happening at that point. Uh, but if it's with us, for example, um, where we did initiate therapy and after you know, three to four days, we actually would counsel them to tell them when to expect to see improvement in symptoms, talk about side effects and such kind of thing. And if after the prescribed time that they should see improvement, but they do not, again, we would actually encourage them to see um, a primary care provider like a physician at that point for a further diagnosis. All right. Will this change, do you think, the way people are interacting with pharmacists when they go to the pharmacy? Because often you're just, not just, but you're talking to somebody across a counter, whether it's uh, when you're talking and getting a prescription and then picking it up. Uh, this is a, this will be more personal information. So will that change as far as the amount of time and how that interaction takes place? Most certainly. Um, so if a patient comes in with a particular, one of those minor ailments or are looking for a contraception, we would actually bring them to a private area where we could actually discuss with them. Many pharmacies already right now have a private counseling um, office or semi-private counseling booth where they can actually have that interaction with the patient, sit down, have that private interaction, and then actually make the assessment and uh, the appropriate diagnosis with the appropriate therapy at that point as well too. So it will definitely be more personal. All right. Uh, you mentioned as well being able to, uh, that pharmacists in BC are now able to authorize to prescribe birth control uh, contraception. Uh, that's a big change. So what will that look like? Um, the same things actually, well, it sounds like a big change, not necessarily massive um, because a lot of our pharmacists and all pharmacy, in fact, all pharmacists, in fact, actually graduate, have gone extensive um, learnings with the various therapies, contraception. So we're all ready and we already have the knowledge behind it. It's just in the past, we actually had to send them to the physician for the initial diagnosis. However, this time around, because we, we have the prescribing powers, we would be able to actually assess the patient and actually apply, uh, prescribe appropriate therapy at that point. And is it all types of contraception or are there only limited ones that pharmacists will be able to prescribe? Yeah, it's all uh, contraceptions, um, IUDs and such kind of thing. So we would actually obviously have to work with the prescriber at that point if it's actually something that requires a physician to um, administer or insert. Uh, but other than that, yes, um, other contraceptives, the regular contraceptives, we definitely would be able to prescribe and get the patients on their way. Right. So oral contraception like pills and such, but uh, we even uh, I know subdermal implants are on the list. Is that something that a doctor or a physician would still have to do? No, we would actually be able to prescribe it, um, depending on which one it is, if it's an injection, because of the change in scope of practice, the pharmacist would be able to inject right away as well, too. Uh, but if it's anything that requires more than that, um, yes, the physician would need to be involved at that point. So it really depends. But the oral contraceptives, for sure, are ones that um, we could prescribe and then have the counsel the patient and then have them on the way and do appropriate follow-up if needed at that point. Uh, since this first started changing, and I know there are more powers that come into effect as of today, but uh, when this first started changing as far as expanding the role that pharmacists play, uh, have you seen a big increase in people that are taking advantage of that and coming to see pharmacists for those ex the, the things that are in the expanded roles? 
Almost certainly, actually, as you can see with the injections, um, when the ministry actually announced that the pharmacists would be helping with the COVID vaccine, um, there was actually a a massive uptake at that point, um, just because of easier access. Um, Another one was actually when they expanded our ability to be able to um, uh, refill prescriptions for a longer period of time, just because of the fact that there was actually less access, uh, more difficult access, we did find a significant uptake. I think that the uptake was well over 100% in terms of the number of prescriptions that we extended for patients up to two years um, when they were eligible. Does it so help? We expect oh, the same sorry. Thing, sorry. We expect the same thing with this actually initial uh, minor ailment prescribing as well, too. Uh, does it help as well? We often talk about people not having family doctors going to walk in clinics. Will this help in that if somebody goes continually to the same pharmacist, everything's going to be on that file and, and the pharmacist will be able to track medications and what uh, somebody's health chart looks like? Yes, most certainly. Um, you know, when you look at pharmacies, there's this. Um, we're open longer hours. Um, so, for example, somebody who is actually having that allergy symptom late in the evening, around 7 o'clock in the evening, they'd be able to go see their pharmacist and actually get that assessment if they're open and actually um, get the medications that they need. So we do find that there will be actually easier access. You know, with over 1,400 community pharmacies across the province, Starting today, there's about 1,100 that already have signed on, and we expect that by the end of the month, even more to be able to actually help patients and actually get the access that they need right away. All right. It's great to see that more people are taking advantage of this and that pharmacists are able to help get people their medications and prescriptions. Chris Chu, thank you so much for your time this morning. Great. Thank you. We're excited about this. All right. Chris Chu is the president of the BC Pharmacy Association. And again, looking at those expanded powers that come into effect today. This is Mornings with Simi. Some new numbers are looking at the cost of the opioid crisis in Canada and specifically here in B.C., taking a look at not only the human cost, the thousands of lives lost, but also the financial costs of the crisis. And joining us now to talk a bit more about this is Timothy Renshaw, editor-at-large of Business in Vancouver. Timothy, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks, Jill. Thanks for your interest in the story. Oh, I know you've written about this and, and taking a look at these numbers. Can you t- talk to us a little bit about what it says about the financial costs when we're looking at lost productivity, uh, premature deaths, and what that looks like? Well, it looks uh, it looks big. Is what it looks like. I mean, it's um, it's into the billions of dollars. You know, I think uh, something along the lines, but for the whole of. Of Canada, uh, if we look at just opioids, um, it looks around just a little over seven billion dollars a year in health and productivity costs. You know, and I, I mean, that's it, it, kind of difficult to uh, assess exactly what that uh, is, but um, you know, it's it, it is a, a significant cost, and that's just the financial part of it. Right. And that's looking, so if I'm reading the numbers correctly, that's looking at uh, taking kind of a snapshot of what was happening in 2020? Mm, that's correct, yeah. So, I mean, uh, it, it, if anything, it's probably more than that now. 
And we, we do talk a lot about the human cost and trying to find ways to stop losing six people every day to illicit dr- drug deaths just in this province, not even right across the country. Uh, but looking at the financial costs as well, uh, how, did the, how did the numbers work as far as looking at things like lost productivity, uh, health care costs, and, and does it go in or does it break those numbers down? Uh, I think it's difficult to break those out exactly. You know, I think um, part of the uh, uh, focus of the uh, story is looking at, you know, uh, what uh, where uh, solutions could be found in this. And um, uh, I think the key issue uh, around this is that really the supply is, is very difficult to control. Because the uh, uh, fentanyl uh, drug is so much more powerful than, say, you know, more traditional kind of uh, drugs such as uh, heroin, uh, so it, it's very easy to move around, very easy to um, smuggle because it's uh, you know you don't need as much, and uh, it's very easy to move uh, the operations and manufacturing of of these drugs, uh, which a lot of this uh, issue started with prescription uh, drugs, uh, prescription of fentanyl and uh, synthetic opioids. So um, uh, it's it's a little bit different from, you know, the, what you look at as traditional heroin and cocaine, that sort of thing. Right. And I know you have quoted the chief coroner in your article on this, and she's certainly been on this station talking about this as well, and how the drugs are changing and not responding as much to things like naloxone and with the health care that's associated with that as well. Uh, one part of it, as far as the costs, again, the costs on the people who are, are losing their lives or becoming, uh, or who are suffering the negative consequences of repeated overdose, as well as, as these new results resistant or more resistant drugs. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, of course, you know, the main uh, issue in, in the death, et cetera, is the fact that there's, uh, uh, there's no telling what is in drugs that you might buy on the street. And uh, so, you know, it's really a, a total uh, crapshoot as far as um, uh, how strong, how much is in it, what is in it. Uh, and, you know, because there's no consistency of control, Anybody who might be using drugs, uh, not uh, addicted, maybe, but just as a recreational uh, uh, use, is really, um, you know, rolling the dice. I know you make mention as well, and not that it's the same thing, but taking a look at what's happening in BC and also comparing that to what's going on in the United States when talking about synthetic opioids and the death toll in the States, what kind of similarities are there between those two jurisdictions? Uh, well, the fact that um, you know the death rate is, is, is huge and uh, it hasn't... Um, it hasn't been reduced over the uh, over the past uh, you know twenty years or so. This has been going on. So, uh, it, you know, North America is one of the major, if not the biggest, market for synthetic opioids. Uh, a lot of which, uh, most of which, comes in from either Mexico or uh, and is manufactured in places like India. Most of the uh, the raw chemicals and precursors are produced in China. So. Um, 
I think the similarity is that uh, Canada and the U.S. are, are major targets uh, and major lucrative markets for uh, dealers and manufacturers of synthetic opioids. And is there a, a big difference as far as what you're seeing right now? And I know you, you write a bit about this as well in what we've heard from the U.S. president, what we're hearing from officials here in what they're doing to try and tackle this. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, tackling it is... is uh, is different because I mean, it's difficult because I mean this didn't start overnight and it's not going to end overnight. So I think there's a there's a need uh, uh, right up and down the whole uh, supply chain of this for some accountability and some realization of how dangerous this all is. I mean, uh, uh, you know, government accountability as far as you know the money and uh, the, the programs etc. that need to be in place. Uh, accountability from uh, law enforcement to try and at least uh, stem the tide of the supply. Also in communities, uh, you know, the need for education and, uh, um, uh, you know, to talk to people, uh, uh, especially young people or or people who are not uh, fully addicted or that this is a really dangerous uh, game. This is really uh, something that's way out of their hands as far as, uh, you know what 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 could happen to them uh, if they uh, begin to use these kind of drugs and even looking at the numbers and again numbers that you've cited that if we compare the number of deaths that are attributed to illicit drugs that uh, 2020 and again the the that was the year that these reports are looking at that the number of deaths doubled from 2007 so clearly i mean even with population growth the problem is continuing it seems to get much much worse that's right, and uh, I think the realization uh, on 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 most sides agreement on at least one thing is that this is uh, this is no longer really like a criminal justice um, a priority, uh, especially for those who are addicted. But it's more like a health priority that um, uh, most sides have come to realize that it's uh, you know it's, it's more than punishment and. Uh, uh, penalties that need to be dealt out here. It's it's more uh, uh, attention to uh, the issue, uh, the issues behind why people are using it, and uh, you know, attempting to get people off of these drugs. And there's also accountability for uh, people who are using these drugs too. You know, I mean, there seems to be an acceptability of uh, a widespread use of uh, of drugs. You know, the uh, pandemic was uh, uh, targeted or has had caused a lot of or intensified a lot of the issues of isolation and depression that uh, lead to the use of some drugs. Uh, so, um, I mean, as I say, accountability everywhere uh, is going to help control the demand part. And that's the only part I think that uh, police and everyone else have come to realize that the demand part controlling that is really the key and the controllable part because the supplies they can move around so much and it's very easy to uh to manufacture and it's so much more potent than heroin that um you know the supply control is really difficult all right timothy renshaw thanks so much for your time this morning okay jill thank you this is mornings with simmy 
Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, there has been ongoing debate about the issue around or issues around open net fish farms in B.C. As you likely know, the federal fisheries minister has said they are going to be closed. The, the licenses will not be renewed, but not everybody agrees with that course of action. And joining us now is Isaiah Robinson, an elected councillor with the Kittasoo Heihe's First Nation. Isaiah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, exactly where uh, the Kittasoo Heihe's is located? Yeah, sure. So we're about 800 kilometers north of Vancouver, uh, probably one of the most remote on the coast of BC. And going back uh, a few decades, uh, a bit of the history of, of the First Nation, from what I understand, very much involved in the commercial fisheries and uh, took a pretty big hit when those fisheries uh, were, were kind of taken away or when they really died down. Yeah, that's right. Just like any coastal community, you know, commercial fisheries was, was one of the largest things we had as a people. And so when that collapsed, uh, we had nothing compared to maybe uh, Vancouver Island. Like we, we're very remote, so we really had nothing to truly fall back on. And what happened to the community then when that was lost? Well, we just dealt with tons of social issues. You know, you're dealing with alcoholism. You know, probably the largest thing we ever really dealt with that, that was very prevalent in our minds is suicides throughout the community. And I understand, too, that so a very difficult, a rather dark time, but that changed quite a bit when salmon farming was introduced and that came to the area. What happened there? Yeah, well, we, you know, we're probably looking at 30 years ago. We started up our own um, salmon farming ourselves before we we even met with industry. We, we piloted ourselves. Basically, what it came down to is our leadership said, how can we get a breadwinner for every household? And so how can we move in that direction. So we piloted off with at least our own concept of the salmon farming and, and that worked for a bit. But then we then we said, well we need to have something bigger. And so we, we decided to grow and develop and you know here we are today and it's you know twenty five years later we've had the, we've pioneered fish farming and we've had the longest agreement with any uh, with uh, with anybody in regards to fish farming period on the coast of BC. And what has that done to the community? Well, it's just been, you know, it's, our situation has just changed completely over the last 25 years. The last 18 years, we haven't had a suicide. And so, you know, it's our people are, are working. You know, we, in the 60s, we had a 5% employment rate just after the collapse. Now we have a 99% employment rate. That's un, that is unheard of on the coast of, of BC, especially in our remote community in British Columbia. That is, my, that, that is a huge, huge difference. And all because of that one industry. Yeah, well, our economy is, you know, we're looking at 51% of our economy is just purely fish farms. So, so, so this decision would completely cripple us. And when you say this decision, so we certainly have heard from the federal fisheries minister and plans to shut down fish farms in the Discovery region, in the Discovery uh, uh, region of, of uh, the Discovery Island salmon farms. Uh, is the idea or the fear then that the decision for Discovery Island, that area, it's going to expand and it will eventually include where where your First Nation is located? Yeah, well, that's really it. You know, we just don't know how the minister's handling it. We've been, we've engaged with her over the last couple of years, and you know, the dialogue's very similar. She, she, if anything, she has already made her decision. She's, she has very much that activist mind, and so that's really our concern. You know, there, there was two nations who were part of the Discovery Islands that were not consulted, and uh, you know, and wanted the farms. 
Uh, and so how, how can they move forward making these decisions without doing proper consultation? Do you have any concerns about the, the impacts or the potential impacts on wild salmon? And I know there's often a difference of opinion. There's a difference mm-hmm. of, of the evidence that's put forward, even what was released in the Cohen Commission. But yeah. do you see any evidence of that or do you have concerns about the impact on the wild salmon stocks? Well, you know, when it comes down to it, Kitasu Heihase has been conducting research and analysis on the interactions between, you know, the wild stock and and the uh, farm salmon for over twenty years. You know, on sea life uh, contaminants. You know, and our work is in the agreement with DFO science. So, so it doesn't appear that there's, you know, if anything, any real effect on the wild stock. And in fact, we look at the salmon returns near the farms up and down the coast, eighty kilometers from us where there are no farms, and, and those returns are moving up and down the same, at the same rate. So it's a much larger environmental problem. It's not this 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 situation we're dealing with right now. It's just, unfortunately, it's a sacrifice, if anything, for, for the minister. And when we talk about the minister, and you mentioned kind of a, an activism role, is it your thought then that the minister, Joyce Marie, that she's acting more based on ideology rather than based on, on the science and what's actually happening in the water? Oh, definitely. This isn't the first time I've dealt with this minister specifically on, uh, on you know, the seafoods. And, you know, my first interaction, she came to me and completely disregarded our science, completely disregarded our perspective on the matter. And yet we have this, you know, this reconciliation agreement at one of the largest scales in Canada. And yet when it comes to the commercial fishery, and yet we got disregarded either way. So, you know, when it came down to it, you know, we expect to have government-to-government relationships and not coming to the table with the decision already and saying, here, this is what you got to play with. I understand as well. So there's been a bit of a delay when it comes to licensing and some of the license cancellations or the non-renewals of the license, Mm -hmm. a bit of a reprieve. But I know know others have, have... commented on that saying, yeah, there's a six-month delay, but it does still seem like the writing's on the wall. Well, when it comes down to it, we need to have better dialogue and better understanding. The the science is is not there. This decision is just, you know, it just doesn't make any sense, to be completely honest with you. The, The amount of fresh proteins that are coming from this for Canadians this is this is one of BC's largest agriculture industries, and um, you know I just read something that stats can is we're looking at a decrease of five percent on fresh product. Now we throw uh, you know this good protein uh, in in with that. You know it's just it's really going to cost the average listener right now a lot of money when it comes to you now going to go going to the grocery store. Right. So what can you do then as far as I know you said you've consulted with the minister and that hasn't really gone anywhere. What can you as a First Nation do to, to fight this or to protect that industry? Well, when it comes down to it, we just want to have further dialogue with everybody around the table. Um, this this decision is, you know, has really put us in a bad situation with our, our other colleagues when it comes to other First Nations. But, you know, we're hoping to have other dialogues and just really explain the situation because, you know, Kittisu's done this science, and it matches in line. There's no issues. So we, we really need to have an understanding of uh, of where we're coming from in that sense. And when you mention kind of pitting against other First Nations, is that the, the idea that if First Nations in the Discovery Islands area, if they're losing this industry, that it, it would seem like an arbitrary decision that you shut it down in, on one part of the coast but not the other? 
Yeah, well, I, I think so. And, I, I, and even when it comes to Discovery Islands, I think, you know, right now they're going through a judicial review because of that decision was made. So, you know, it comes down to it. <laughs> the government really needs to start respecting reconciliation and self-determination because we, we are not going to go, we're, we're simply not just going to take this. You know, when it comes down to it, there is going to be courts. And that's, that's the last thing we want to do. We want to have good dialogue and get somewhere because, you know, my nation, my colleagues, didn't do this, create the development corporation 30 years ago. And this is being one of the largest things that they've developed for it just to be taken away from us. This is taking a long time to get to. And, you know, it's, it's going to cost a lot of money. And I'm guessing too, and, and I've not seen the operation in person, but I'm guessing that moving it to an online system isn't a viable option. No, it's not. And, and, you know, the province actually released a report, I think it was in February by Dr. Roth of the province, and it'd take 10 years and $1.8 billion to even do that. And you look at the on-land systems right now, like I think it's called Atlantic Sapphire in um, uh, Florida, the stocks are plummeting. The, the amount of money for, for to operate something like that, it's, it's wild. But even when it comes to, like, my community, industry's not going to plop something like that in the middle of nowhere. If anything, they drop it in Richmond or Delta, where it's flattened, where it's, they can directly drop it off to the airport or whatever. Like that, for us, it's not a, it's, it's not feasible. And uh, like you said too, going from a five percent to a ninety-nine percent employment rate, my guess is that would also be lost if this was shut down. Oh yeah, well definitely. We, we're we're looking at you know fifty-one percent collapse of our economy. If anything, a second collapse that our community has ever faced in, in this last hundred years. All right. Well, Isaiah, we'll continue following along to see what happens next with this. But I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much.